Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is Nitin Sawney to talk about how he recorded and produced the album Beyond Skin. Nitin Sawney is a British Indian musician, producer and composer. His work often blends Asian and other worldwide influences, including elements of jazz, classical and electronica, regularly exploring themes such as politics, spirituality and multiculturalism. As a child, Nitin studied piano, classical and flamenco guitar, sitar and tabla. But it was only after dropping out of university and spending some time developing a BBC Radio sketch show that he refocused his attention on music, self-releasing his debut solo album, Spirit Dance, in 1993. His major musical breakthrough came in 1999 in the form of his fourth album, Beyond Skin, released on Outcast Records. The album earned him a Mercury Music Prize nomination, as well as the renowned South Bank Show Award. Subsequent albums have included collaborations and performances from a multitude of artists, including the likes of Paul McCartney, Sting, Imogen Heap and Joss Stone, as well as sitarist Anushka Shankar, whose Grammy-nominated album Nitin also produced. As a composer, Nitin has written original scores for a host of TV shows, games and films, including BBC's Human Planet, feature film Breathe and most recently scoring the Netflix hit Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. Having performed extensively around the world and with over 20 studio albums to his name, Nitin has received a plethora of awards, most recently becoming the recipient of the prestigious Ivan Novello Lifetime Achievement Award. Today, I'm here at the Dairy in Brixton, London, with Nitin to talk about how Beyond Skin was recorded and produced, and what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. Ya no malmiten a mí It is Homeland's Nitin Sawney, and I'm very pleased to say that Nitin Sawney has sat in front of me, and we're here in the Dairy, your current studio. Yes, Hello, indeed. Nitin. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you doing, John? Um, very well, thank Excellent. you. So, I mean, you're, you must be in celebratory mood, because it's the 20th anniversary of Beyond Skin. You've just had a, a beautiful concert performing it at the Royal Albert Hall. Celebrate is written on your T-shirt. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was fantastic playing there um, the other day. I mean, incredibly exhilarating and so much energy from the audience and the band and it was just a beautiful evening um sold out and we were 
honoured to receive a standing ovation from literally it looked like everybody in the whole place at the end. It was such a lovely, uh, lovely show and uh, a night for everyone, I think. And yeah. um, it felt very cathartic in a lot of ways, given the times we're in. But I mean, you know, it was it was nice to contextualise, recontextualise Beyond Skin from when I'd originally come up with it and to to place it in what's going on right now yeah yeah i mean listening to it again it does seem incredibly contemporary now in various different ways so we're sat in this beautiful room um with a massive neve desk i think is it Mm -hmm. Um, in in front of us in the dairy in brixton um going back to when you started working on beyond skin 20 years ago or further back i guess um what kind of setup did you have then (laughs) Uh, nothing like this. It was pretty much, I mean, I did the whole of Beyond Skin pretty much in my bedroom um, in Tooting. And I just had, I was sharing a, a flat with some friends and literally I had a, a pretty small room. And within that room, I had a Kenwood stereo system, which I used for the speakers. I used um, a ProMix 01 old Yamaha mixing desk, which was I was very excited about because it had automated faders. And then um, I think I used... I barely used a computer that much in those days. I mean, I, although I did use Logic, I was mainly using, um, when I say Logic, it was just that kind of software. But then I was also using um, a DMT-8, a Fostex DMT-8 multi-track recorder and a GMS-2 keyboard, which was kind of quite often what I would use as the main source of the programming. So it was, and, and plus an Akai sampler. It was a very old school, very kind of hands-on system that I had. Yeah, amazing. I mean, especially considering how rich and deep Beyond Skin is musically and in terms of the instrumentation and the scope and and the richness of the sound that you've created there. Well, to think that you. a lot of it was done in a bedroom in yeah. Tooting. Yeah. Well, it was it was weird because workarounds, like finding workarounds to make things sound the way I wanted them to sound was was actually quite a a challenge at times. And um and so but in in looking for workarounds and to design everything ergonomically so that I could actually reach whatever I needed to at any given moment and try to create a sound that I was interested in creating. That actually meant that I I paid a lot more attention to the end result and I was just constantly listening all the time. Sometimes when we have the aid of computers, we can be deceived by our eyes when we look at graphics. But I think, you know, at the time, I was always just using my ears to really judge whether things were right. Yeah, and listening through speakers or listening through headphones? Listening or, to, through both. Yes. I would, yeah. I would do a lot of uh, listening through speakers and headphones, yeah. Yeah, through the Kenwood speakers. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was bizarre because actually there was a, a hi-fi magazine afterwards that put Beyond Skin or some of the tracks of Beyond Skin on their front cover as an example of, of great sound. <laughs> and and actually my next uh, contract with V2, they said, we'd like your your next album to be up to the sonic standard of Beyond Skin. I thought, Wow. Uh, you know, given that it was just done in my bedroom, that, was, that wasn't a big challenge. <laughs> Amazing. So and we're going to look at a few tracks in detail, but we're also going to talk a bit about Homelands because you regard that particular track as being a centrepiece of the album. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah and, that's true. I mean, it's interesting because it seems like a, a song of two halves in a way, but it has so many different things going on. I mean, you're crossing continents on that particular song, as you do really across the whole of Beyond Skin. Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, Homelands has um, 
is recorded in different places. Um, but I, I recorded, for example, the Rizwan Muslim uh, Kavali group, and uh, they are nephews of the great Ustad Nusrat Fateli Khan, who's, who was a renowned Sufi singer. Um, the form of Kavali is an old traditional form, um, mainly practiced in Pakistan and certain parts of the world, um, which comes from a kind of more liberal uh, kind of take on Islam and more mystical mysticism. It's a very devotional form of music. Um, I'm not f- from a Muslim background myself. I'm from a Hindu background in terms of my heritage, but I've always loved Qawwali. It's a very... Um, and, and Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan, I mean, his voice was used on many in many soundtracks for films like um, Dead Man Walking, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, Natural Born Killers. Um, Jeff Buckley called him his Elvis. You know, he was a very... Um, influential singer and uh, of course he uh, he was remixed by Massive Attack uh, with his work with Michael Brook uh, on Must Must mm. uh, back in 1990 so he kind of was a great influence and and his nephews continued on with that tradition and what they're using on Homelands is a form which is kind of a bit like if you think of it in western terms it's a bit like do re mi fa so la ti do so in India you have sari gama pada nisa which is the equivalent so when you're hearing them sing some of the lines you will actually hear them singing the pitches of the of the notes that they're singing so they'll be telling you which notes they're singing effectively as they're coming up with some of these lines so it uses kavali but also uses um the sarigama form of that or sagam form of yeah. that as well and wh- where did you record them so we recorded them oh yeah uh i'm trying to remember where we did we we didn't record them at my home we re- went somewhere I think in West London to record them. I cannot recall now yeah. exactly where, but um, but I remember recording them. And I didn't record them against the music that everyone has heard. I mean, from if they've listened to Homelands, it was literally them actually recording um, an, a normal traditional Kavali form and improvising. But then I got them to... Uh, but I, I split everything and isolated all the sounds so that I could take parts and, and work with those independently. And what brief did you give them then? I mean, so the words you were talking about, do you give them words? Yeah, I, gave, to say, I, yeah. I give them notes and, um, and you know, give them phrases and so on. And we'd talk through what they were going to do. And then I would jam with them. Um, you know, I was still playing with them when we did things. But because um, they are largely improvisational, mm. uh, it was a case of working with them in that way. It was very difficult to set things too much, uh, particularly because they just express themselves. It's a very expressive form of singing and music. Um, but then, you know, then bringing in flamenco. I mean, I, I don't know if you're aware of um, an amazing film uh, from a guy called Tony Gatliff from 1993 called Lacho Drom, which in Romany means safe journey. And in that film, Tony Gatliff uh, traces the journey of the uh, gypsies across from Rajasthan, across Turkey and into Spain, where they, you know, they picked up all the Moorish influences, but they also had... You know, all, all the flamenco um, that came from Rajasthan, um, you know, with, with castanets from Rajasthani gypsies actually, you know, came into the, the way we understand flamenco now. And so there is a huge influence even with Kathak dance in India uh, upon flamenco. And so I kind of wanted to bring that, those references in. So you'll hear a flamenco singer coming in at one point. Um, and then there's also... The way I'm playing the guitar, I kind of use some influences from flamenco um, as well. But along with that, I bring in some Brazilian influences, which I loved as well. So lots yeah. of different ways of thinking about music. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and, and you've got Nina Miranda on there, mm. um, who is from Brazil. Yeah. Um, 
you know, in that in the second half, you know, it, it takes us to an, another part of the world. And it, it's it's just really interesting the way that you have gone on a journey within that track mm. and purposely, obviously, you know, that's the, the whole point. And it illustrates this unification of the planet uh, musically, I think, really, really well. Yeah, in a way. I mean, macrocosmically, maybe. But I mean, at the same time, I was thinking uh, quite a lot of it in a kind of metaphorical way. So Homelands being... To me, my homeland is ultimately myself. So it's actually, in a way, by kind of using lots of different kind of influences from different parts of the globe, it's simultaneously looking at how we, in a way, transcend all those boundaries when we are just ourselves. I think there are lots of ways in which nationality, religion, race, all those kinds of things try to imitate our identity or we we mistake them for our identity or we imagine that is who we are but i think that homelands is very much about saying we are more than that we're not just simply about the land that we're born on we're actually also about the land that is in our hearts and in our minds yeah amazing i think it would be great to hear uh, maybe the transition from i think it's around two minutes uh, that goes from the I guess the Kuali section into Nina Miranda and then she comes in and starts um, doing a kind of backing vocal line and then starts singing a, the, the front piece or you know, however we want to describe it. And when, when we look at her words, were they um, all written out for her or did you discuss? No, we with... discussed that. So, mm. so she, I mean, I mean, she wrote those words, but then we talked a lot about what what it was that I wanted to say and what we were trying to do. And so she actually beautifully uh, managed to capture that in these words. And uh, and they are about the fragility of the land and, and, and how we have to take care of the land. And, and again, that's about how we take care of ourselves and our internal psychology and, and how we honour ourselves. Um, you know, and I, I guess there's that as well. So the symbolism is there too. Yeah. I do love this bit because it sounds as if we're now in Ipanema and <laughs> yeah. we, we've changed continent. My goal was really to blend things in a, or to bring things together in such a way that didn't sound contrived that, that really served the emotion and the feeling of the music and, and that was the idea. So ultimately I didn't really, it didn't bother me that, um, you know, that the uh, voices seemed to come from very different places. It seemed to work very well for me. Oh, completely. No, it, it, it's, it's brilliantly done. I mean, going back to listen to the album now in preparation for our chat, it seems so well done, so well executed that oh, you've you. brought all these things together. And it just seems so funny that um, that seems so long ago. You know, and and, and you know, what I love about an album like Beyond Skin is that 
it gives us such hope, even though in many ways the subject matter of a, a lot of the songs and, and the ideas behind the whole record are, are quite bleak in, mm. in some ways. Mm. Um, but the, musically, you give us such hope because you have brought all these things together and make them work so well together that it, it feels really hopeful to me. Well, thank you. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying in terms of the, the bleak nature of some of it. And of course, I do start the album with the Indian Prime Minister of the time in 1999, uh, Vajpayee, uh, who was their leader or the head of the B uh, BJP, which was the Hindu Fundamentalist Party. Um, he was uh, proudly announcing that he had uh, tested three nuclear bombs in the Pokhran Range in India. And um, the idea of starting the album with that was, well, it was bookending the album with a paradox. So at the end of the album, I, I finish with Oppenheimer, who was, of course, the creator of the bomb. He was, the, you know, with the Manhattan Project, he created the nuclear bomb. And he is talking about how he feels, and he's quoting from the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scripture, in condemnation of his own creation. And he's crying as he says, you know, I feel like um, Vishnu, I've become Vishnu, death, the destroyer of worlds which is very profound and very powerful, uh, given that he witnessed the first test. Um, and so it was kind of strange to me because I thought, well, here you have the Hindu, you know, guy who's supposed to be the bastion of, or the, you know, the um, guardian of a religion. He sees himself that way, the Hindu fundamentalist party. And there he is actually saying, isn't it fantastic? We've got three nuclear bombs we're testing. And he's supposed to be from, you know, from a religious, it's kind of effectively like a theocracy. And then at the end of the album, you've got uh, Oppenheimer, who's saying, I hate the creation of the bomb, but I created it. And he's an American scientist of German descent who's actually, you know, quoting correctly and appropriately from Hindi scripture to condemn his own creation. And I just thought the paradox of that is phenomenal because it just exposes the nonsense of nationality and religion. Do you, do you get what I mean? It oh, just, completely, it, and yeah. it's kind of, and to encapsulate the whole album in that way, was what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of like start with that because and end with that way, uh, that way because within the context of the album, then I go into songs which were about immigration, which got into songs of separation and identity and race and, and so on. So it was a nice way to kind of um, to create a framework for, for everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, Broken Skin is the opening track. Beyond Skin is the closing track. Mm -hmm. And as you say, they use these two pieces of, of recorded dialogue mm. um, and when you were assembling all the ingredients had something triggered um, I mean that maybe that statement from the um, Hindu fundamentalist I mean maybe that had been on the news recently so that triggered that and then you, you went back and dug out that Oppenheimer um, quote but it, you were searching for bits of dialogue because dialogue is yeah. used throughout the course yeah. of the album. I mean, of course, my mum and dad are speaking quite extensively on the album and in, in a very optimistic way. I mean, it's quite interesting getting into the whole nuclear thing because I don't know if, any, if anyone's seen uh, When the Wind Blows, mm -hmm. uh, Raymond Briggs' uh, incredible animation, which is very bleak in so many ways, but it, it's about optimism and naivety as well um, and how accepting people are of information, you know, the Protect and Survive Guide that you know tells you how to survive a nuclear holocaust and there's this couple that you see deteriorating before your eyes believing everything they're reading thinking oh we'll, we'll be okay look you know this is fine if we just follow this it tells us that that we'll be okay and of course they're not okay and you know in some ways i kind of felt that about my mum and dad if you listen to their voices on the album there's a real sense of innocence about them you know and and they believe 
in this idea that you know they'll be accepted and everything's going to be wonderful and it's going to be just a utopian existence when they go to a new land and of course there was a lot of racism that they confronted or they were confronted by um but at the same time what i loved about my parents was that they always had this sense of hope and optimism all the way through their lives and uh, continued to do so until my dad passed away in 2013 and i think you know, that was really inspiring in lots of ways. And it was fantastic at the Royal Albert Hall last week to, you know, my mum was there. But then I'm playing back samples of my dad speaking and he, he died a few years ago. So, you know, to 5,000 people in the Royal Albert Hall. So it was very poignant and, and very emotional for me to, to do that. And then, you know, to play a track like The Immigrant, which was to honour him and to honour my mum as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would be great to hear um, some of your father speaking now, if possible. Possibly they advertised in the local newspapers in Delhi that they are encouraging for people to come down here and work. And uh, then we went to the embassies, they showed us Kew Garden pictures and pictures of the various parts of England, that it is all that beautiful and everything is just right. And that's what we just uh, applied for the voucher. When did you record that? So that was recorded in about, uh, I think, 98. Right. Yeah. And was that, you just went round to see them one day? and, and uh, Yeah, or, basically. And I went round to see them and I recorded, I interviewed my mum and dad about their experiences and how they felt coming here. And it was great to do that, actually, because it was, um, I think they had some catharsis in doing that. And, and they felt very proud and happy to talk about that. You know, it was, um, yeah, it's, it's something... It, People just don't hear those stories. They yeah. don't hear. There's not enough of that. It's ridiculous. I mean, I'm I'm wearing a t-shirt now that says "Celebrate Immigrants," and you know, I kind of think um, the negativity, the amount of phenomenal negativity that there has been in the media about immigration, and from people who we're supposed to believe are our leaders, um, disgusts me, frankly. Yeah. And and you know, and and it did then as well. You know, and it has always continued. You know, it's, it, I just find it amazing how we are all gaslit into believing that in some ways immigration is is a huge negative influence on this country and yet it's a huge net, you know, net benefit to the country. Yeah. So with Beyond Skin, it's really about acknowledging those journeys and, and saying, no, <laughs> this means something. And Beyond Skin, the way we perceive each other, you know, it's the, if you don't perceive somebody else as equal to you, then it's your own insecurity. You're projecting your insecurity onto other people, not that they are inferior to you. I mean, everyone, every human being is born of equal value. And and I guess that was really what, what the album's about, is actually just looking at, at all those things and thinking about it. It's a reflection on all of that and a meditation on that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so when you went to see your parents and recorded those conversations, did you have um, a specific goal in mind or did you think, right, I, I really want to explore their thoughts on this subject? The latter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wanted to kind of really give them a voice, yeah. I suppose. And, and actually to, so that... You know, I could put that onto an album and and just say this is this is where the music that I'm making comes from. It's coming from this feeling or this way of thinking, and and you know, it's about honouring that. And tr writing a track like the immigrant uh, was very much about that. So you know, the immigrant itself um, f for the stuff that I write. I mean, quite often I'll write quite dark music and kind of you know um, trippy music or whatever. But this particular track is a very hopeful, deliberately hopeful and optimistic track. And it's a ballad and it's it's done in such a way that sounds that it almost sounds naive um, and it has a 
has a sweetness to it. But I, I think that was about capturing their essence and who, who my mum and dad are. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should hear a little bit of The Immigrant then. Sure. really interesting hearing that because you know for an album that in a way is about nuclear bombs um, but it's also about identity and and immigration and integration um, but stylistically within the album you draw on so many different influences and yet some of these subject matters you know when I think of, of songs about or that relate to nuclear war you know I think of the early 80s punk era and the kind of two-minute noise fest that were you know crying out against the idea that there was a three-minute warning and, and, you know, I think of Crass and th those mm. kind of... And that was one particular response Crass. to that. Crass yeah, were great. Amazing, okay. amazing group. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily think of the, the kind of rich uh, melting pot that you, you bring together, you know, to, to discuss these things, which I think is a really interesting th response to it all because people react to it in different ways. Now, when they hear a ballad like that, it connects more to the, a soul R&B um, tradition and and people then immediately think oh it's it's personal it's a love thing mm. or you know because we bring all these preconceptions mm. to what we listen to and how we listen to it yeah you no know, and and through that with beyond skin you kind of challenge us um, in a way and it, with the celebration at the time and it was nominated for the Mercury Prize um, the worry about some of that celebration is that it gets compartmentalized again and it's like oh right so this is a great coffee table album or you know that that kind of thing um which how did you react to all of that i mean obviously it's great being told you've made a fantastic album well it was it, there's a lot of questions in what you just yeah <laughs> i know sorry yeah. so so what i would say is that i mean uh, first of all uh, i mean the the choice of of what kind of music uh, i would create for each track was quite often about decontextualization so whatever i would write about sometimes i would do i would go with my instinct and think okay i'll go down this road or or sometimes i would actually go against my instinct and and find that quite interesting you know with broken skin it's quite an upbeat kind of track in a way but it's mm. actually about nuclear radiation and killing children so it's kind of like so it, but having said that the album isn't really about nuclear bombs or anything like that it's about the like i said it's the paradoxes of religion nationality the nuclear kind of metaphor was actually about that paradox um yeah i mean there's so much in this album it's there crazy is. because i mean for example i mean if i jump around you know between the tracks i mean i've got nadia which came from my interest in drum and bass at the time i was listening to uh, a lot of drum and bass from people like Fotech and um, you know LTJ Bookham, yeah. I think, and uh, yeah. and then listening to you know Goldie later on with Timeless, and then um, going into um, you know obviously flamenco, R and B, soul, and jazz, but also then at times it would get into 
some weird kind of contemporary art house kind of stuff. You know, it's just kind of jumping around between lots of things, whatever was going to work. I mean, Serpents, for example, is a track, is a really weird track in, in lots of ways. And yet when we performed it live, I mean, we did it in Dublin two days ago and it went down a storm. And I thought, here's a track that's actually written in nine beat cycles, which you just don't get very often in any kind of Western, I mean, even in Western classical music, apart from if, if I think of Claire de Lune, I guess that's in 9-8, but it's very much, it's broken down. I mean, Debussy broke that down in a very simplistic way, whereas with Indian classical music, it's far, far more complex. You have very, you know, you'll have what are known as the highs. Indian classical music has a lot of, um, a lot of complexity to it. I mean, with a the high, you will have a given time cycle and within that time cycle, which is, you know, if you think in, in terms of bars, so if you had a 9-4 time cycle or a 9-8 time cycle, you have to land on the first beat of a given bar or time cycle by repeating a phrase three times, for example. So so one phrase within a nine-beat cycle uh, could be... And, it, and the last day lands on the one. Now, those syllables I'm saying, some of them are numbers, some of them come from an Indian, North Indian classical dance form called Kathak, and then sometimes I'll use tabla syllables. Tabla is an Indian form of percussion. There are lots of elements in this album where I'm, I'm getting very deeply into quite technical ways of thinking about Indian classical music as well. Um, so it jumps between a lot of things. And my background is that I studied Western classical piano first and was playing everything from Debussy, Chopin, Bach, Rukmaninoff later, and then going into playing jazz piano with local quartets. And then I was in a punk band, a rock band, a funk band. Uh, I played Indian classical doubler at nearby Gurdwara. I played sitar. I got into orchestration. I was playing with the youth orchestra. I got into, into that and then I learned how to orchestrate. Um, so my head goes into so many places, um, but I know those places well. I don't feel unfamiliar. I can jump into playing a Van Halen guitar solo yeah. and then go into playing a classical piece of music or more getting into Indian, you know, working with people like Anushka Shankar, you know, Ravi Shankar's daughter or people, you know, and I'm very lucky that way in that I had a very rich upbringing musically, which kind of was a bit of an accident of the fact that my mum and dad just had a very wide taste and eclectic way of thinking about music. So I was influenced by lots of things. And then my brothers were listening to a lot of music from Zeppelin to The Doors to, you know, all kinds of rock music. And then I was at school where, you know, during the time when the punk movement kind of blew up and, like you said, bands like Crass or, yeah. or The Clash and, you know, so many bands that I was kind of really into that had a lot of integrity with what they were saying. I really liked the political messages of some of those. So I think there's a lot of that that kind of found its way into what I think and how I approach music. So... The idea of not being afraid to, to make strong statements, I think, came from my love of punk as well when I was a kid. So, you know, all of that kind of was, was influencing me. Yeah. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. 
Many of our guests on Take Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. It, it's amazing, isn't it? Because it is all in there. And yet, going back to 1999, when this came out, this also did seem a very contemporary album. And I think you can hear lots of contemporary musical styles and references in there as well. Um, we were going to dig deep into Broken Skin, weren't we? Um, because one thing that interests me about that is the strings on that. Some of the strings remind me of Soul to Soul, the way that they just do those little repetitions, just that little section that has that kind of... Yeah, I mean, I uh, loved Soul yeah. to Soul. I loved, uh, I mean, Jazzy B uh, actually was, um, I met him quite a few times. And in fact, we ended up um, at one point going on tour of Australia with him with the Good Vibrations tour. Um, but... I wouldn't be so specific as that. I mean, the people who are playing on that are um, instrumental. The, the string quartet, who or quintet actually, came from Four Hero when I heard Two Pages and um, some of that music or, or some of Four Hero's work. Yeah. So it's interesting if you listen to Two Pages um, and you listen to the strings on that and then you listen to the strings on Homelands, you'll realise it's a similar sound right. in the vibrato, which is actually because I'm using the same string players. So, you know, it was... Um, there were lots of influences um, that I had. I mean, um, but I think, you know, I, I grew up loving orchestration. Of course, I'm a film composer, so mm. I loved listening to the amazing strings, particularly people like Bernard Herrmann, who yeah. was, you know, with his stabbing kind of sounds, literally with Psycho, with the music for that. But I mean, yeah, with the music for Psycho, it was only strings that he used. He didn't use woodwind or brass or percussion or anything else. It was all strings. So, um, you know, I had a love for great string arranging always. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if we try and dig into one of these songs, I'd love to know where it all starts, because obviously there's so much training um, in your past. There's so so many different influences, as, as you've been telling us. Um, but when you have an idea, uh, how long do you have to let it percolate? Uh, or could it just, you know, so many songwriters start with, you know, a little melody um, a, a little riff, and then it, it builds from that. But because this is so rich, you know, how, how do you put it all together? It's the idea, you know, like Beyond Skin. First of all, that title, 
that's a huge title to mm. try and serve musically. To try and find what does that mean is is really a massive journey because Beyond Skin is actually what is inside you as a human being, but it's also about perception and and how we look at other people and how we project our own insecurities on other people and how we I guess we get to a point where we can transcend those prejudices and insecurities to actually be able to see beyond skin literally you know to see people for who they are not what is on the surface so I guess all of that you know is in there and then to try and find a musical vocabulary to illustrate that or to really get that across is another massive journey because then of course, you can't just stay with one genre. You know, if you're going to get that idea across, you've got to move and you've got to be able to work with a lot of different genres in a way that doesn't sound contrived or forced. And that's why I hate the idea of fusion or world music, because these are contrived ways of thinking about music. It has to start with the emotion, the idea and what it is you want to say. And then you find the vocabulary, as you do in conversation, to, to express that. And I kind of think, um, you know, I mean... With something like Homelands, I I would start with a with a, a guitar sound. You know, I mean, it, it might be a riff like that. So it'd be just something like this as I'm playing now, and then and then on top of that, you build build all the different elements. And but but there's something very powerful about that. There's there's space within that to feel something. And, you know, it's, it's, it's actually then getting into, into playing a, an offbeat rhythm with it. And so sitting in your bedroom in Tooting, yeah. you would record these ideas. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't notate them necessarily afterwards. Sometimes I would, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I, I do a mixture of notation and... Uh, mm. And it depends what it is I'm trying to do. But obviously, if you're working your own album, if you're playing something yourself, you don't need to notate it because you know it. But I mean, if I'm writing for other people, then I'll score out what I need to for a string orchestra or string quartet or whatever to play. Yeah, so it's it's using a multi multitude of different ways of getting music across. I mean, Indian classical music comes from an oral tradition, as I was just demonstrating. Yeah. So so you, you learn syllables, you learn ways of... It comes from... The Natya Shastra, which was a, a treatise written 200 BC, which actually looks at how the different art forms work together to create ideas. And, uh, and so you'll, you'll look at almost a vocabulary of how classical dance forms can work with classical music forms or theatre forms. So um, you have all of that template to work with with Indian classical music, which is really handy. So I'll, I'll incorporate some of those ways of thinking into Western music as well into western classical music or composition or approaches that i have from having a western classical background yeah yeah i mean it seems to me that um you've got this particular um position or context which means that you can cross across these things so easily you know because of where you grew up your parentage etc you know mm. and everything you soaked up allows you to make those transitions very easily yeah well i i don't know if any of it is easy but i mean yeah. it's something that i I feel I have access to, and mm. I have the same reference points as everyone else around me, but I have a whole additional set of reference points from my heritage and from my interests as well. I mean, flamenco uh, was something that I was kind of interested in when I was young, but I only discovered later that in a way it's probably the most perfect or the most unbelievably well-known form of what people might 
think of as fusion between East and West because you've got, as I was saying, you've got that journey of the Rajasthani gypsies across Turkey into mm. Spain and then you've got amazing luminaries like Paco de Lucia, Tomatito, who actually have kind of contemporized all of that into bringing in elements of jazz and, and Western classical harmony as well. And, and so they've heightened it as an art form in the way that people like Segovia did with classical guitar. It, I remember meeting one of the great flamenco guitarists, Pepe Bituela, in uh, Madrid, who I worked with for a while. And he, you know, he said it all comes from India straight away, which sounds a bit like a line from Goodness Gracious Me, but it's kind of, like, <laughs> but it was kind of you know, it's great that he would acknowledge that history. And, and that's what I mean about the power of immigration. I mean, my favourite form of, of music, which is flamenco, came from immigration yeah. you know uh, into spain and and how powerful that was and you know if you listen to a lot of the gypsy music which is all about freedom of movement of people you know um the the most exciting and most brilliant music comes from that which is at the end of the day an extension of, of the spirit of humanity of, of different people yeah yeah it's fascinating i'm trying to work out how we can get into looking at a particular track and how you built it up or how you piece it together because i mean we i mean serpents is quite good that way um i i earlier on i was talking about the way in which you i can use what's known as the thihai um so within um serpents because it's in a nine beat cycle you have lots of different ways of creating uh thihais which are phrases that are repeated three times landing on the first beat of the cycle so for example you sometimes have ways of counting numbers like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You know, it's a bit in Hindi would be So you have these kinds of things, but then you will have them repeated around three times in patterns that allow them to land on the first beat of a of a cycle. So you might have something like So you have that th repeated around three times. You have a two beat gap in between and then you you land on the one. So there's lots of different uh, patterns. And on Serpents, I had a, a Catholic dancer, North Indian classical dancer called Shishmita Ghosh, who actually came and uh, spoke some of those patterns with me. Um, and then also a, a tabla player called uh, Devinder Singh, who would actually speak some of the tabla patterns on this. But then, it, you know, it was built around a riff as well, which is a nine-beat riff, uh, if I play that. So that's over nine beats. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three. So, so within that, you might ha actually have chords. So I'd I'd have like that that as a basic riff working underneath what they were doing, and then I I brought in. Um, a percussionist called Steve Shahan, who who actually uh, played percussion throughout, and he he worked with people like Paul Simon for his Graceland's work and and all of that. So it was kind of, it was great to have some really good um, good musicians while working with me. So Serpents is kind of largely built around the form of dance called uh, Kathak. Then you have an amazing uh, Bansuri player, which is kind of like an Indian bamboo flute, and the the classical player um, who's on this particular track is a guy called Ronu who is from India and is an unbelievable musician. Um, but it's, um, it's a very complex track. 
and uh, and yet it's amazing when we play it live because we get a we get a fantastic response and uh, it's very cool how people respond to something that actually is quite inaccessible to most people in the West because they don't have that exposure to Indian classical form. I think we should hear it now. So that's the dancer explaining yeah. the pattern that well, she... she's delicate so it's like it works that way it's just kind of working around this nine beat cycle mm. so it's kind of it's just working around um around it with the syllables these syllables come from that she's speaking right now come from the the instrument called the tabla which is a percussion instrument so so you'll hear her shortly uh, speaking another pattern uh, which is uh, it, which is uh, I can't say it at the same time is that going on there you go so it comes up again so I just use little bits of the highs and kind of and put them together and then it goes into you hear like the fantastic percussionist Steve Shahan coming in here and I would kind of play around in kind of really weird ways with the EQs I remember doing that at the time it sounds quite odd now when I listen back to it uh, some of the things I was doing with the EQs right. um, but I, I I really liked uh, how it sounded in the end it kind of it had the feeling that I wanted to get across and I think that's the main thing for me I I never really kind of was that bothered certainly not at that time about sonic perfection I was much more interested in what something conjured up in your mind or your imagination yeah and you can hear um, Ronnie playing beautifully on the Bansuri an amazing player this uh, this is built around a rag a particularly Indian classical rag rag means colour literally um, but within the Indian classical system you have different rags which are based on times of the day different moods and so on so um, this rag that I was using is a rag called Shiva Ranjani uh, which actually if I play it in C um, C minor is but then if I start using by using D as the tonal center I, I it, it becomes displaced and it becomes more like a, a rog pervi which is another rog but it's actually using a, a kind of pentatonic version of it based on rog sh shivaranjani so it's it becomes darker so it has the minor second in which kind of sounds almost threatening. Which is, and it has a darkness to it. So as soon as you bring in those elements, it becomes for me, uh, also, again, it's about changing um, how we hear something, even within any classical music, how we see, hear something in a more conventional way and hearing it in an unusual way by decontextualizing it. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And assembling serpents, I mean, how long did that take? Uh, it, it took quite a while because, yeah. because the limitations of what I had in the studio, I'd have to keep bouncing things back and forth and, you know, and I'd lose sound quality and I'd have to think, okay, how do I get around that? You know, it, it was... It was quite a mad process. Like, like I said, I'm just working like a, a weirdo kind of sitting in my bedroom, just kind of creating sounds that, you know, two or three in the morning, driving everyone else mad, but trying to keep everything down and quiet as much as I can. But it was like or working through headphones. But it was, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a deep process. to, to And, and all, because it's very solitary, a lot of it, I was just kind of trying to figure out stuff on my own. Yeah, but making these trips to go and record these people doing their different parts. Sometimes, or they'd just come to my room. Right. So, just, so, yeah, so Shishmita would just come to my room and just literally through an SM58, you know, yeah. would just record her voice down. So yeah. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I had the best gear either. You yeah. Know, I was just literally doing everything with whatever I could get my hands on at the time. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a loaded musician who had like access to loads of gear. I just kind of tried to figure out what I could. Yeah, and so recording those percussionists as well, is that similar fashion? Yeah, so yeah. they'd come to the, the bedroom in yeah, tooting, really? Yeah, yeah, or they'd be in the living room. I'd ask the rest of my flatmates if I could take over the living room for a bit and then, you know, chuck cables down the stairs to be able to record them, you know, in the and, yeah, get a few players in at a time. Yeah, so I used the living room as a, as a kind of bigger live room. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Because I mean, obviously, you know, some of these players are are, are of international renown, and the idea that they would, you know, okay, we'll go to Nitten's house in Tooting and just do a quick session there. But then, and then you would be left with those recordings, and then you would spend these nights trying to work out how you were going to. Put it, it was all mad in that in that place. I mean, I had Paul McCartney come there. I had <laughs> I had um, uh, who played yesterday in my bedroom. I had uh, Sinead O'Connor came there to do a session for me. Um, Jeff Beck came to learn Nadia in that house. Um, from me so that he could play it on the guitar which is one of the other tracks on, on the album and then um which is incredible I mean, jeff beck was one of my guitar heroes and then you know um shara nelson from massive attack came to work there with me i mean i had incredible range of people kind of pass through that tiny yeah. room and just they'd just come down and and they were really chilled about you know doing something in a tiny room because i think they just kind of found it quite novel and a bit weird yeah yeah wow i mean it sounds <laughs> you know how we hold um studio sacred you know for for <laughs> having been uh the, the the place that so many amazing talents have have worked in i mean this sounds like your your bedroom well, in tooting I mean, that you know. guitar this guitar right here you know that I, I was playing earlier on it's been played by so many great artists you mm. know and like i said i mean paul mccartney came and and said looked to my bedroom he said oh i used to live in a place like this and i I wrote a track and the track was called Scrambled Eggs and he said, I'll play it to you and it turned out to be Yesterday, yeah. which originally was called Scrambled Eggs. He played that on that guitar. And, you know, there were loads of people who played that guitar who were icons of that time and, and since then, you know, I mm. mean, Sting's played it. Um, that's a very special guitar. It's kind of like um, it's got the spirit of lots of different amazing artists in there. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And were all those visitations um, after Beyond Skin or before Beyond Skin? No, um, some of them during. I mean, yeah. Paul McCartney came before uh, Beyond Skin to my house because I was doing something with him called the Fireman Project. I was working on the um, on a remix of that. Uh, yeah. But it was quite mad because actually Paul McCartney, the thing is he comes into your room and you kind of think, oh, I know this guy really well. I've never met him before, but mm. I, I know... Like when he's talking about John and I used to do, and I think, oh, that's John Lennon. I know John Lennon. I know his whole history. And I'm, I'm thinking that's really weird to meet someone and know so much about their history and their life. 
and you know to even know that his wife had only recently died and never met the guy before never had a conversation with him never had any kind of connection with him but to know all of that stuff just because he's that well known yeah is quite weird but then you know uh, i i don't think i was in awe of him i think the, the only person i've ever been in awe of that i ever met was nelson mandela he's mm. the only person i've ever kind of thought you know, he's the only person that made me feel like shriveling <laughs> just with his amazing vibe. But Paul McCartney was just a very easy guy to get on with. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Um, if we think about a track like Letting Go, yeah, um, because that's quite a contrast to some of the songs that we've been talking about, because ultimately that is just you, isn't it? Plus Tina Grace singing. Yeah. So you do everything. Well, not or, everything. No, no? Not, absolutely okay. not. I, I do. I have um, Divin the Sing on there, who's actually singing at one point. Um, and then I have a Swaleen. Uh, I have a Sarangi player on this one uh, from India, um, who's who's playing a little bit of Sarangi. Uh, I also have some strings from the string quartet um, yeah. instrumental. I did all the programming on it and I did the guitar on it and wrote it with Tina Grace. So yeah. it worked that way. Yeah. So where did it all start? I mean, I mean, it's, it all sound quite different to the original because, of course, there's lots of plugins and all kinds of stuff we use to process it, but mm. um, or I used to process it. But it's, uh, well, it starts really um, for me with the guitar riff. So here's the guitar on its own, which is just like this. And is this that same guitar that yeah. you've just been yeah, using and guitar, that yeah, yeah, has been played by see, Paul McCartney yeah, and Sinead? So then along with that, I had a, an AN1X uh, synthesizer and I sat for ages trying to create this kind of um, weird white noise kind of um, groove on there. And I kind of, I really loved it and thought, oh, I need to keep that and, uh, and just loop it around. So I created this. which is kind of quite a weird sound, but it's kind of, I really liked it. And then I, I kind of liked, it reminded me of rain as well with some of the, some of the sound of it. So, so then I put the, literally put the sound of rain with it. Now is that your own recording yeah, of some, rain? Yeah, yeah, I recorded some out, rain. Out the window of the bedroom? I think so, yeah. yeah. And then along with that, I had, uh, then if you put the guitar, And then along with that, I put in kind of like a trippy little loop. So which you'll hear come in here. And is that loop created from a recording of some kind of percussion just there? Or just a hip-hop loop that I yeah. probably found at the time. Uh, yeah. And then along with that, I kind of put in... Um, I put in all kinds of other things. I, put, I had a whirly uh, keyboard sound that I used, which I really like. So if I if I play play that on its own, so I played this in on a on a whirly. Yeah. And what that was was kind of I loved any Morricone, and if you've ever seen the spaghetti westerns with the, which one is it? I think it's for a few dollars more. There's one where this guy, this evil guy. I can't remember what his name is in the film, but he gives somebody a pocket watch, and when the when the chiming of the pocket watch runs out, 
then it's time to draw and to, to try and shoot each other. And I thought it was quite haunting, that sound, and I love Ennio Morricone's work. So I kind of, as a little kind of nod to him, I kind of came up with this little riff that had an element of that. Yeah. So it's kind of like I had that going on in the background, you know, and then I'd have, you know, the strings themselves, which sounded like this, again, from instrumental, the string quartet or quintet, I can't remember what they were at the time. Now, you can hear how lovely their vibrato is. And where did you record them? In in the uh, living room again in the living room. <laughs> yeah, wow! Yeah. And d- for, because they feature on on the album across yeah. that, so all yeah. in one session or a few sessions. Uh, a few sessions, yeah, I think. Yeah. So it was. I mean, and then I've got the bass. So I'm just playing the bass in there along with everything, and they kind of. <laughs> so I've got got uh, Tina Grace singing here. How can I? Turn to the dark and the swaying silence. I see there's nothing I can hold on to. And then, uh, and then her harmonies as well with her BVs. Don't be afraid of letting go. So I'd kind of like them would just put it all together, I guess, and it's. Mm. Uh, And so when you originally started working with Tina on the song, did you have any of this or it was just that guitar part and we worked together we yeah. just created it together so this is a song that is possibly the only one on the album that's co-written but yeah i worked with tina for a long time so um and tina still sings with me she yes. sang with me at the royal Albert hall the other yeah. day and sung this song yeah so you hear davinda sing who's yeah. got an incredible voice there um just to just to play his voice actually this is the swaline it was i was wrong it wasn't the sarangi the swaline is a cross between and in, in two instruments it's a cross between a violin and a sarangi sarangi is a north indian classical instrument but the the thing about the swaline was it there was only one in the world this guy happened to play it so um you'll hear him play this which is So it's just kind of you hear it cut off, which is kind of like how I was doing things at the time because that probably came from a sample, um, as in, you know, I would record it and then stuck it into my Akai uh, sample at the time and just played it. And there was a roughness to certain things. I mean, sometimes I'd take my finger off too quickly or whatever and it, it would just cut things off, but then I'd kind of leave them like that because I didn't mind the roughness. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there was also um, Devinder Singh singing. I mean, he's got an absolutely stunning voice. You'll hear him here singing along with uh, with the swallings so between them there's an interplay if you listen to his voice with the guitar as well uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
so I'd, I'd bring his voice in. Um, I mean, there's lots of elements. It's beautiful. It, you know. oh, and, and it's funny because this does seem, well, it seemed to me that it was one of the simpler tracks and yet there's yeah, all, this, yeah. all this going on. <laughs> this was probably about the simplest track on the album. Yeah, yeah there's, uh, I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just things that I really liked the sound of, the, the feeling of. I mean, when I listen to it now, obviously uh, it sounds quite relatively tinny because it's not being processed, but, you know, then I would, I would process it afterwards. But, um, and it was pretty bad gear that I was recording onto but then afterwards I was spending a lot of time trying to get the sound right so you're hearing it in, in a very raw form mm. but having said that I think uh, the essence of it is still there when you listen back to it even like this yeah and did you do all the mixing on it yeah I, I did the mixing on virtually the whole album apart from uh, I worked with a guy called Tony Economides um, and we did some work together later on and then mastering blimey I think it might have been at the exchange in Camden it was it was weird because the I wanted to have really strange EQing at times. I really wanted to have so that so nothing felt too predictable sonically. It didn't. I didn't want it to be too pleasant at times as well, and sometimes a little bit harsh in the ear. Serpents is definitely very harsh, you know, at times to listen to. But then I needed to at times um, get get it so that people didn't feel lulled into some kind of soporific way of listening to the album because it is kind of quite a chill album in some places well, well this is it because yeah. in a way that was what i was alluding to earlier because it does as a as a whole thing as a, a you know put it on and and relax experience you you can do that with it and yet you know you're you're you've got a lot of very serious topics yeah i mean having said that you know with tracks like beyond skin at the end i've got a mad kind of five beat loop on there which is quite crazy or mm. or you know uh with with kind of really transistory sounds from oppenheimer speaking and you know um there are some crazy kind of eqs on a lot of things as well and kind of things to to kind of uh, to poke at you a little bit, so you don't kind of feel it's too too soft or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you notice Oppenheimer mm. and his words, then you're going to start paying attention to that. Yeah, yeah, you know, totally. It, it yeah. definitely jolts you out of whatever um, state of relaxation you might have been in. But yeah, but it's interesting that you chose to work in these in these different ways that it would move from one to the other. That that it's challenging and yet it can be relaxing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating because I found out later on that Sting and Madonna used to do yoga to this album, and like so, and they'd go go from doing, and it'd be full on Ashtanga yoga. So they'd be doing, they'd start off quite softly, and they said it really worked for them to get into quite hot, kind of sweaty yoga, you know, and then they'd come down again. So so it's kind of uh, it's quite fascinating that that's how they listen to it. But I mean, you know. Um, I didn't really overthink it in that respect. I just tried to find uh, the language of what I wanted to say at the time. Yeah, yeah. So another song that you worked with Tina on was Nostalgia, and I think you're able to find the parts for that for us. Yeah, I mean, uh, you have to bear in mind these parts are, are recorded like 20-something years ago in all kinds of ad hoc ways. So this is the kind of assembled... Uh, kind of version of those from that time but then and also untreated these are very raw files so they'll sound quite tinny or quite strange but but yeah you get the essence of them i mean here's um here are the uh string parts in isolation for example let me just try playing with those You'd have these kinds of um, 
strings and then I'd I'd bring in let me see what I've got here I've got some sub bass I don't know if you'll pick that up on, on the radio but it's kind of like a so it's kind of like very very low kind of sounds with a kick and snare I think we can feel that with tabla sound Touch your memories, but I can hear you. So there's there's a bit of the voice against the beat. Again, I've kind of got some guitar lines here. So here's some of the guitar parts on their own. And you can hear I've kind of made them quite crackly. I was into the idea of of trying to make things re reference um, transistor radios because I grew up with transistor radios a lot and um, so there is a tinniness to some of it that's deliberate because I kind of feel for me that transistor radios evoked memory and this track's called Nostalgia and so at times I would actually try to bring in and I'd deliberately uh, mix in crackle because that's how I listen to transistor radio so I'd pick up uh, pirate radio stations like Radio Caroline when I was a kid so given that this track's called Nostalgia um, I was trying to find the sonic of my memories and you know of, of what I listened to when I was a kid so you know it sounds like a very old kind of tinny yeah. guitar sound that's coming through through some kind of transistor and the um, crackle would that um, I would have found I, I would have found that or I would have maybe recorded that in from a vinyl play that I might have had. Yeah. So, yeah, so I had decks because I used to DJ at the time. So I'd kind of combine all these things and then, um, yeah, and then just put it together. I mean, it's like uh, that's pretty much it. it kind of, this one, this one's also quite a simple one compared to some of the others. of the lyrics would you have a had a discussion with tina about what what you were hoping to try and no i and wrote do, that one. You, so, so i wrote th those the are lyrics, all your words yeah yeah, yeah. so, yeah. so it, this was about my my feeling about my parents and mm. and it was kind of like the idea that i couldn't really ever tr ever really capture uh, i could never really understand their journey and all of their heritage because it, i was detached from it now um you know growing up in england i i no longer i, I was disconnected from the land that they'd grown up in and and their personal experiences and, and memories and um and what had been passed down to them it no longer was passed down i, I didn't even really speak the language i did a bit mm. but you know i didn't have that same deep connection with um you know my mum knew all these sanskrit prayers and and all kinds of stuff because she came from the brahmin caste um, which is the priest caste so she had thousands of years of priests you know, within her heritage, you know, and my dad came from the Kshatriya caste, which is the warrior caste. So they were the first of their castes to actually intermarry, which was quite controversial in some ways at the time. So you have this um, kind of incredibly rich uh, background and, and history uh, with the way in which they'd um, evolved their thinking and, and the way they looked at the world, which is kind of part of their breeding in a way. So in a way, this track is about the fact that I, I couldn't really quite touch that or get to that, 
when I talk about nostalgia, it's, it's a nostalgia that I'm kind of projecting as well. Because when, when I was a kid, I remember when I was nine years old, I, there was a tiny model of the Taj Mahal in the house. And I remember looking at it and thinking, uh, that's amazing. And then I went to India when I was eight or nine and saw at Taj Mahal in, in real life, you know, and, and actually thought, my God, what an amazingly beautiful building. And, um, and it was it was the splendor of India, um, you know, when I saw these palaces and these incredible places, as well as the poverty and all the other negative stuff about India. Um, but it was it became a visceral reality that was also beautiful and romantic as well. Um, but I again, it, it made me always think, my God, you know, India's the stuff of dreams. It's kind of like it's a it's a place that's kind of like a fairy tale place to me. So. I could, you know, it was that idea that I couldn't really quite understand it. So that's what I was trying to capture in the lyrics and the feel of the track. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's really interesting the way that you contrast those kinds of songs with some of the music on on the rest of the album and and the way that you explore all these these different themes. You know, because they they are uh, universal as well. Because uh, you know that the whole world has has travelled around and moved from one country to another, and each subsequent generation is is kind of faced with these these concerns and these questions, you know, wherever you've moved from and your your family background, your heritage is so important, you have it reinforced for you by your parents throughout the course of your, your childhood uh, and yet it can seem so far away and so untouchable in, in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, but having said that, it was only as I got older that I kind of recognised that, that it was important to also think that you or, or to imagine that you create your own personal culture that mm. you know that you're not you're not a slave to your nationality or your national identity or your national heritage um and from that point of view i i think that's why i really embraced fomenko is because it was kind of something that i f- found very powerful and um and and then i found out it actually had come from uh you know a mixture of my heritage and context and so it was it seemed like the perfect form for me in a lot of ways um actually what I'll, i could do now is i could play you a backing that i created for um for the track uh, heresica latina which is um which is a flamenco track that i play when we go on tour sometimes uh, just to give you an idea of um, of how sometimes i'll create a backing yeah. so that i can play some flamenco yeah fantastic <laughs> So, so on this backing that I've created here, uh, you'll hear a bit of Ashwin Srinivasan's voice, um, who who actually sings with me. I kind of put a weird bit of phasing on his voice; it sounds a bit trippy. But but it's um, I've kind of programmed up a l- little bit of bass, uh, cajon, and some drums just so I can play along with it. And sometimes I'll I'll do that live if I'm if I haven't got a band with me um, to enable me just to practice with flamenco. So here's uh, Heresica Latina.
So as you listen to this, you should realize that I am watching Nitin play guitar along to the backing track that he's, he has created. What a privilege and what an amazing sight. bit of uh, flamenco with the backing there but um absolutely fantastic that was great i mean it's interesting that backing track because um you it sounds as if people are playing along with you really the way that you put it together and it's all (laughs) apart from uh, ashwin Srinivas and singing live and then i treat his voice but i mean sometimes i'll do that maybe even occasionally to thicken the sound when i'm playing live with uh, players Mm. but then i always make sure i've got musicians who are incredible players who, who play everything live yeah. and will play along maybe a little bit with a little bit of backing. I'll probably even strip that back so there's hardly anything in there. Maybe, you know, maybe a little bit of cajon or something, just to add a little th- bit of that flamenco vibe to what's going on. Yeah, yeah. But the way that you've done it, you know, even has those those spaces for you to, yeah. you know, it's very well, you know, that, that I mean, that communicates as if these are a bunch of musicians communicating and looking at each other and say, right, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's from from years of playing that track live with musicians anyway. So I kind of sometimes do that just to practice as well uh, before. I mean, quite often we'll do it. I mean, normally we do it without a backing track at all. But if it's just me, sometimes doing a little appearance somewhere, I'll just use a backing track that I might have created. But to give that feeling of of, uh, live musicianship as well, I'll use quite organic sounds. I'm not a big fan if I'm playing live um, with a backing track uh, of using too many electronic sounds. I'll use sounds that sound you know, quite organic as well. Mm, yeah. And so, and did you record that in the dairy here? <coughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Listening to the story knitting of, of, of the album and the songs and say your own background where, you know, your parents married out of caste um, and listening and hearing the different elements that are within this record, you traverse India, you know, you break boundaries, you cross borders and, and break beyond caste again and again. Yeah. You know, which... You know, especially with the different musicians that you're working with, was that ever a problem for them? You know, that if they, if they knew, uh, hang on a minute, I'm working with a Hindu guy and, you know, he's going to use my my heritage. And was that ever discussed no, or was that ever... Not really. I think people, I mean, musicians tend to be very open people. I think they're kind of, and they're interested in different ways of thinking mm. about sound and about um, approaches to musicianship. And um, so I think generally... You know, that's not the case. I think most musicians I, or, or creative people I know really want to learn about different ways of thinking rather, and, and embrace that rather than feeling insecure about that. Yeah. And as somebody who you studied Western classical music, all your knowledge of, of the music from the Indian subcontinent comes from family or self-taught or um, did you go and study with Well, be- my mum was a, a Bharatanatyam dancer um, when she was young, which is... Um, kind of like an equivalent of ballet, I guess, in, the, in that it's an Indian classical form of music, uh, of, of dance. But then in addition to that, I, I studied some sitar and tabla at nearby Gurdwara, which is a Sikh temple. Like I said, we're from a Hindu background, but my mum and dad were very embracing of all religions. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, like even some of the core arrangements I do now come from listening to, you know, Christian music and, and early yeah. music with... Um, with Gregorian chants and so on. So even sometimes I'll listen to a lot of 
music from different religious backgrounds just to kind of which I, I love devotional music I'm very into that because there's there's real power to that and the spirituality of that of, of different forms of music from different religions and devotions um that's that's really empowering to listen to yeah yeah it's fascinating I mean, it seems to me that you occupy a, an almost unique position of, of somebody who can draw so so well from all these different rich I, like I like I said, I think I was kind of very lucky in that I, I mean, I, I was very interested in lots of different ways of thinking about music and, and just about the world. And all of that enabled me to have a vocabulary that was quite wide, which I didn't realise I was gaining when I was young. I mean, I didn't realise it was weird to play, to go from playing in an orchestra to a punk band or to playing in a temple. I didn't find it odd. For me, the default position should be that music is music and you explore it in whatever way you can. Yeah. And I'm, I'm surprised quite often that that isn't the way most people think. Yeah. I, it confuses me, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people get, you get locked in a groove and, and sometimes it's hard to bust out of that groove. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing though. And did you have an ambition for Beyond Skin? Because in some ways, you know, as, as you were saying, it's, it's a very deep thought, just the very phrase, the very title. You know, did you hope that people would listen to it and and start to realise that we have to think beyond skin. So when I make an album, I don't really think about what's going to happen to it afterwards. First of all, it has to be expressive and cathartic. It has to come from a feeling that you need to get something out of your system. And so then it's it, whatever it is, it, it becomes music. And then you might share it with other people afterwards. So it's like writing a diary entry. You know, if you're writing in your diary, you don't really when you're writing in your diary, really think about other people reading it later, but then you might share it with friends. And then if you know that you may share it with friends later on, perhaps that might slightly influence how you how you write, but not massively. I mean, ultimately, it's a personal statement. Yeah, fascinating. And um, we do have questions from from regular listeners to tape notes to, to run by you and a few uh, regular questions that we also run by the, uh, the different people we talk to. In terms of the, the repeat questions, um, one piece of learning we're always trying to get is uh, what piece of advice would you give to any aspiring musicians or producers? I always say just be yourself. Um, if, you're, if you're making music um, that is about you and your and what you want to say, then and it, and that's harder than people think quite often because we can become characters when we write music. And I think for me that never works when you're trying to make an album or um, trying to make a serious piece of music because you can hear when people are not being real. You know, so I I would say the hardest thing is to be yourself when you're expressing your your music. But then. At the same time, if you're working for someone else, if you're writing music for a director or, or you know, or collaborating, then it's about serving a vision and, and working in a different way, but still retaining your identity. So I think the hardest thing is to retain your identity. And I think before you start music, it's, it's actually about questioning where you want to come from. Are you coming from, you know, your heart? Are you coming from your mind? And, and if you are coming from your mind, why are you doing that? You know, it's kind of like those kinds of questions I always start with. Yeah, interesting. Um, do you think about performing music live as you write it before you record it? Um, I normally start by performing it live. So I like to start with something that works in itself before I get into programming. So um, normally I'll start with a piano or a guitar or a little riff or something I might be humming or singing. Um, 
and or even lyrics, but it'll be something that's real, that's that that feels like it has substance. And then I'll get into working around that to frame it rather than thinking about the programming being the main thing. Yeah. We've talked about influences. Um, do you have a particular producer influence? You know, somebody who you thought, wow, how have they recorded that? I, I love Massive Attack. I think that, that they're geniuses. I mean, like the definitely the uh, remix they did of uh, Must Must, which mm. was the uh, Nusrat Fatih Khan track um, from 1990. That, that actually... Uh, was one of the most influential pieces of music of, on me ever. You know, in in terms of also its dub influences from people like Adrian Sherwood at the time, from uh, you know his on you sound um, stuff with bands like Dub Syndicate, African Head Charge, Tack Head, all those really cool bands. Um, you know, I think that whole dub sound found its way into dubstep later on. Um, so yeah, I love what Massive Attack do. Yeah, it's interesting with regard to artists like that. In some ways. You know, they're employing uh, the work of Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. Um, could have been seen or could have been just uh, playing with Exotica for, for them. I and mean, it, it's interesting hearing your admiration because you're so deeply embedded in that world, you know, that you would have approached it in a, di- in a different way. But clearly you heard it and thought, whoa, that's... No, I think you know. I think they have a real respect they have for... I mean, mm. they, they, it was really daring of them to do something like that, to, you know, as a... As a band that was kind of known for doing, you know, the kind for Blue Lines, I think I can't remember when Blue Lines came about, but but it was 1990 when they did that. So it was it was around the time of Blue Lines that they did that remix, and it was very bold. No one no one was doing anything like that. I mean, you'd have some Asian mixes, but they weren't as incredible as Massive Attack at what they did. Um, you know, so I think it was it was really inspiring to hear a a well-known and exciting band like Massive Attack actually produced the kind of stuff they did. Mm. And at the time, actually, they brought in uh, someone I was working with then called Talvin Singh, and I was in a band with him, and he he actually played doubler with them at the time. So, you know, it wasn't like they wanted to do things in a superficial way. They did actually look to bring in Asian musicians as well, which I think was great. Yeah. Is there a piece of kit that you can't do without? So I'm looking at you. You've got your guitar sat on your lap. <coughs> this guitar. It seems think, to me that yeah, it's guitar. this guitar because of its history and, and what I've used it for. But then again, there's also uh, there's the Baker guitar. James Baker actually um, made a guitar for me, which is um, is tuned in a certain way that I found from um, from an Indian classical um, musician called Yu Srinivas, who who taught me how to tune my guitar in a certain way that allowed me to make it sound like more of an Indian instrument. Are there particular pieces of tech? Well, I think I think using Logic software, it changed my life. So using Logic software was incredible because it also allowed me to get into all kinds of plugins and uh, ways of looking at sounds that were, it, you know, it, it helped me with orchestration. I mean, now I guess probably my favourite piece of tech, apart from that, is, is probably... Um, Microsoft Surface uh, with um, StaffPad and StaffPad is a way of notating so you can actually write literally on staves and um, and it will turn it into print so you can by hand write on the screen mm. and it will turn it into printed music so I can literally orchestrate and write for a whole orchestra just by hand and it will turn those into parts for each member of the orchestra to play. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Moving to some of our listener questions. Nick from Marlowe says, given that this was recorded over 20 years ago, how has your setup changed over the years? So we've we've heard about the bedroom in Tooting and we heard about that kind of setup. Having worked like that for 
successfully for, for quite a while. You're now in a very different setup with a gigantic desk at your disposal if you need it. Um, could you return to the setup that you employed in Tooting all those years ago? I could, but I'd be a lot slower than I am now. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, um, you know, I mean, right now I'm working on a couple of TV series. I'm doing, you know, working my next album. I've just signed a three album deal with Sony, which I'm very excited about, which is quite mad at my age. But, um, you know, I'm working on that. I'm doing, um, I'm about to do a, a very big film score. Um, so it allows me to jump between projects very easily and very efficiently and and to to think very differently. My mind kind of flits around a lot, even during the course of a single day. I might I might jump into so many different ways of looking at music, which I, I enjoy doing because uh, it, it kind of um, it stops me getting too bored. I think if I were to go back to that way of working, I wouldn't be able to deliver what I need to. Yeah. Um, going back to Beyond Skin, Bob from Stepney wonders, how did you track the string parts on the album? And in a way, we've already talked about that a little bit. So quite a few of the string parts actually recorded in your living room. Yeah, quite often it wasn't a very complicated microphone system. I mean, nowadays you'll have so many different ways of recording with, with microphones at different distances and you'll have more conventional techniques of recording. But I, at the time, it was just more makeshift. And it would be single performances, you know, I wouldn't really track things. It'd just be yeah. getting everyone to play together, which I still think is is the best way. I was a big, you know, fan of the idea of just like, does this feel and sound like the way I want it to sound in the track? At the time, I didn't really kind of record it and then think, how do I mix it in later? I wanted to just get the sound that I was looking for um, there and then. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of links into... Anek from Amsterdam's question, which is, can you remember what microphones you used recording the album? So you, you mentioned the SM58 for Tina's vocal at one point, but say if you were recording those string parts, would you just use that same SM58? Generally, I was using SM58. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have any money for much else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. occasionally I think I hired a few mics in, but not very often. And a lot can be achieved. I mean, you're, this is a prime example of what can be achieved if you can approach things creatively and you know just use whatever equipment you've got yeah, I think, you know, we have association with sound, you know, and I think people forget that sometimes when, they, when they're recording, they will record the conventional or the best way you, you can record. But then the way we hear sound is, is actually about memory and, and association quite often. So the way in which I'll record sounds sometimes or I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll incorporate particular instruments in tracks I write will be more based around um, an old record I might have heard or, or an old um, TV programme I might have seen that might have used strings in a certain way. I mean, you mentioned Soul to Soul. It probably was an influence in, in the sound I was looking for. You know, it's, it, it just depends what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating to come to the dairy and watch you at work, Nitin. And thank you so much for allowing us to come in and sharing uh, both those those sessions from so many years ago and also set up your piano and, and the guitar cool. in, in this way to illustrate your work. And we should play one more song from the record to round things up. What, what should we go for? Um, Actually, one, uh, one thing I might finish with is, uh, is something like the conference and yes. just, to, just to talk you through the conference yeah. before you do. I mean, that's an interesting, I mean, because I think, am I right in thinking the, the conference follows nostalgia mm -hmm. on the album yeah. and, and kind of shakes things up? Yeah, so the conference is actually about the political world we're in and the turmoil of, of that world. And, and um, so the conference is actually about almost 
the unintelligible way in which people speak to each other. So it's kind of it was conversation, but I was using uh, Indian classical uh, tabla spoken rhythms in order to get that across. So the first thing you will hear is based on the patterns of um, a well-known guru from the Jaipur Gharana of Kathak dance called Birja Maharaj. And he actually speaks a rhythm which is in what's known as Tintal, which is a 16-beat cycle. And the rhythm goes... So that's the rhythm. And I, I do that slowly... So I'll do it at this speed. So it's at half speed. And then across that, um, as a cross rhythm, I'll put in another one that goes. And that goes around three times and then they land together on another rhythm. And it gets, it builds up uh, to be quite complicated. And you'll hear these two amazing um, uh, tabla players speaking these rhythms. One is Jayanta Bush, who's... Um, who's a renowned uh, musician from Calcutta, and then Devinder Singh, who you heard singing earlier, but also is an unbelievable uh, tabla player. And you'll hear at one point, I isolated his voice uh, saying some of these rhythms at a phenomenal speed. Um, but the precision with which he can speak these rhythms is absolutely unbelievable, as you'll hear. Was this recorded in the living room? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it, it does astound me just how much you managed to record in that flat. Yeah, I know. I was quite mad, yeah. So was it two-level? Yeah. So yeah, I had a living room uh, downstairs and then my bedroom up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you said you were saying that you ran cables down the stairs, so, that, so they would plug back in, the microphones would be in the room, and then the cable would go back upstairs into the computer. Yeah, although I think they just did this in my bedroom. Right. So I, just, I gave them two SM58s, and they would just, just went for it with a click track, and then I put the beat underneath. Yeah. <laughs> See, listen to this. I mean, you'll hear in a minute when I isolate uh, Devinder's uh, voice. He, it's just a phenomenal speed that he speaks. Uh, he speaks some of these rhythms that I think comes up in a second. Yeah, it's quite mad. I mean, it's like a Steve Shahan playing percussion. Here it comes. No, it's not this one. <laughs> They, they were having a lot of fun. They were improvising around yeah. some of these pits. Yeah. I think it's coming up here. I mean, I, f I find that phenomenal. I mean, he, he, he's, got, he's got such precision with some... I mean, he's having fun there, but he can do the most complicated mathematical patterns. You, you would not believe what the guy's capable of. Mm. He's like, his brain is like a, is like a computer. And, and so the technique that you're hearing is just a function of how incredibly brilliant these people are. You know, like uh, great tabla players like, like Devinder or Jayanta. Yeah. Who can who can really break down rhythm into such 
intricate uh, patterns. It's, it's amazing to listen to and to see them at work. Yeah, incredible. I mean, you can hear the sense of fun they're having. Yeah, absolutely. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of it. So, so yeah, I mean, it's. I, I guess. I mean, I guess the whole thing with um, this album was also to decontextualize a lot of Indian classical music as well, and to bring that into a more kind of um, ways of listening to music that people hadn't heard before. Because I, I think people can be quite dismissive if they hear music in a way that is familiar to them. Like, for example, they might hear an Indian classical piece of music in a restaurant or they might hear it in, in a, you know, in a context that they don't feel familiar with or they, or they just go, or they expect to hear it that way. And so they dismiss it and don't think about it. But as soon as you decontextualize any form of music and, and, and play it in a way that people aren't familiar with, I mean, if you take, say, Madlib, years ago who who actually revisited all the blue note music and incorporated some of Miles Davis's music or or just different music um into kind of more of a hip hop context you know suddenly you're listening to that music in a whole different way and i think you know that's that's a great way to approach music is to constantly mix it up and and change it up so you're not getting used to thinking of music in only one way yeah yeah completely and it does break down barriers as well yeah absolutely no. This has been so great, Nitin. Thank you so much. Um, we will play out with one more song from the album. Nadia, I think, would be a nice choice. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.